0: This is the Photography Podcast on photography.ca, episode number 133, Essential Camera Features, an interview with Royce Howland. Hey there photo lovers, how's it going and welcome to the 133rd photography podcast on photography.ca. My name is Marco and as usual we're coming to you from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. For today's show we're going to talk about essential camera features and we're going to do an interview with Royce Howland. A lot of times these days we'll buy new cameras and they're full of bells and whistles that we're never going to use. So Royce and I get into what we use, what we think are some of the essential camera features and pretty much ignore all the rest of the bells and whistles. But before we get into it, I always like to thank people for their comments on our last podcast, and I'd like to thank uh, Sandra Foster for leaving a comment about our last podcast, number 132, where we had an interview with Brian Davies about uh, his rust photography. Favorite way to get comments, as always, is directly through the blog, that's photography.ca forward slash blog, and I'd also like to thank the camera store, the largest camera store in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, for sponsoring this podcast. So as mentioned, this podcast is all about essential camera features. It's an interview with Royce Howland. It's about 40 minutes long, so let's just get right into it now. And I'd like to welcome back a special guest to our podcast. This is Royce Howland. He's a fine art photographer from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He's been on our podcast a number of times before, and today we're going to talk about essential camera features. Thanks so much for doing this, Royce. Appreciate it as always
1: glad to be back marco i always enjoy these conversations and it's great to be back on the podcast
0: appreciate that so both royce and i you know give workshops where we're often uh giving people instruction on how to use their camera how best to use their camera and one of the topics that that i get asked all the time are you know what essential camera features should i be getting on my camera Rather than talk about it alone, I thought we'd have a roundtable with Roy so we could get the benefit of maybe a two-sided conversation versus one. And um, I find a lot of the stuff on the camera, just before we even start, it, it's a lot of extras. And I personally don't use a lot of the bells and whistles. When we buy a new camera, sometimes you know, the marketing for it can be three pages long, and I probably don't use 90 to 95% of, of all of that stuff. How do you feel about it in general?
1: Yeah, I agree totally with you, Marco. I mean, the camera these days really can be described as a computer with a lens on the front of it. And if we know anything about computers and the whole electronics industry, it seems to be characterized in a number of ways, but one of which is just the complexity of it increases year after year. So many features, so many functions, so much stuff in there. And the you know the manufacturers need you to constantly be buying upgrades, and the way they do it often is by packing more features and more functions in there. Do we really need all that kind of stuff to make a photograph? And my personal feeling is, uh, no, we don't need it. And increasingly, even though you know I'm sitting here looking in my hand right now, I've got a Pentax 645Z medium format body. It's a state-of-the-art digital camera with so much technology packed into it, it would make your head explode, but. I use it in a really old school way that would be familiar with a 645 film medium format shooter from the mid 1970s. I kind of call my style high tech old school and I find I'm using a really stripped down feature set of the modern digital camera.
0: People are going to want to know for sure, why are you using that camera then? Is it mostly for, I'm guessing it's mostly for its resolution, but maybe you could uh, you know, be more precise.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it certainly is a resolution thing. You know, one of the past podcasts we've talked about is printing and how to make good quality uh, large prints. And so for uh, me, going to large print as my goal for photography, I'm looking for resolution. I'm looking for dynamic range. I'm looking for color quality, and a medium format camera excels in those kinds of areas. It's to do partly with the sensor, partly with the lens optics, and various other things in the camera system. But uh, you know, a lot of that is quite Um, quite separate from all of the modern digital camera features and whiz-bang functions that are built into the camera on top, those things really don't let me make a better photograph.
0: Before we actually get into talking about, you know, our favorite basics and stuff, what's your opinion in general on the complexity of the camera? Let's say someone is coming to you for the first time and they don't know a lot about cameras in general, and they don't know a lot about photography in general, but they're earnest, they want to learn. Is there going to be a certain type of camera you're going to recommend?
1: I try to recommend based on what it is that they're looking to learn about. Uh, So a good simple DSLR with interchangeable lens system is a, a good general purpose thing for people to learn about camera systems. But I've honestly told some people that I think they're better off starting learning with a camera phone that they already have in their pocket. If I get a sense that what they're really trying to do is to learn how to see and compose with different subjects sometimes having the minimum amount of technology getting between you and the act of taking the photograph will deliver the kind of photograph that you want to learn how to make and a camera phone is the ultimate simplicity so that might be an effective way for some folks to really get into photography but um, I think a a DSLR being a good general purpose camera system is suitable for a lot of people and I'll often guide them in terms of expectations on the budget spend as little as possible on the camera body itself and if you're going to direct your investment invest into lenses that are going to give you the kinds of photographic opportunities that you want whether it's sports and action you know with your kids hockey games whether it's birds or wildlife whether it's flower macro close-up shots whether it's landscapes all of these are different kinds of things and they really depend more on the type of lenses you have than they do on the camera body itself
0: solid solid advice Uh, i tend to give very similar advice Uh, i'm a little more specific i think I'm a Nikon shooter, but uh, a lot of people come to me with like Canon cameras, so I'm quite familiar with both Nikon and Canon I tell them to just go for the base model of a Nikon or a Canon usually with the starter lens it's uh, under $500 sometimes I tell them don't take the lens just start off with a 50 millimeter lens for like <coughs> 450 or 500 dollars. learn how to see with that lens for like a month and then see if you like it and you know, and learn about photography with a camera like that
1: yeah, and then add to it. You know, there there's nothing more there's nothing more con- concerning to me as a workshop leader than to see somebody come on an event of mine with a bag full of equipment and then to be frustrated because they're trying to figure out how to use the many selections of gear that are at their disposal to make a photograph in a given situation. And I think a lot of that is Uh, possible to avoid by just simplifying the amount of gear that you're carrying with you or trying to use at any given point in time. Less is definitely more at that early stage of trying to sort out how to see, how to compose, how to photograph, how to make the camera do what you're trying to get out of it.
0: Yeah, they might be asking too much of themselves and perhaps of the workshop to learn all that in a workshop. You know, that, that takes years actually, you know, to learn how to see with different lenses and practice with different lenses. For me, that's not a workshop thing. That's a self-practice thing. That's a uh, that's an earning it type thing, you know, over, over time, over time.
1: Yes, definitely agree with you on that.
0: Cool. So, yeah, we like simpler cameras. Some of the things on the new cameras um, are amazing, though. I find them amazing. For me, I'll just talk about my favorite right away. I love being able to move around the focus points because I'm always composing um, off-center subjects. The, uh, the sharpest element in my photographs, and I'm always playing with aperture and things like that, um, they're off-center, and I want them to be sharp. And by my having the ability to move those focus points around quickly um, and effortlessly, for me, that, that's really one of the highlights of, of, these, of these new cameras. And one of the reasons I love my cameras so, and one of the reasons that I highly recommend DSLR cameras over other types at this point, sometimes, is because still the ability to move those focus points around quickly, to have access to them easily, um, they just so have it down in DSLRs these days.
1: Yeah, I agree. The the digital SLR is a very mature type of camera at this point. We've gone through many, many model releases by Canon, Nikon, Pentax, you know, the various players that are out there. The SLR is something that they have figured out, you know, and, and they know how to make it work. It's a mature product that does something and does it very well. And one of the signature things for me that really uh, discriminates between a person who would say, maybe am I looking at buying an SLR type of camera, a digital SLR, or some of the new mirrorless ones, is that the SLR autofocus systems and focusing systems are far more mature, far faster, far more capable and controllable usually speaking than you have in the case of the mirrorless cameras. The mirrorless cameras are a newer generation of camera. They're just not as proven out yet. And one of the areas where you see that is the maturity of speed, control, you know, performance and accuracy of their autofocus systems. The SLR uh, definitely has them beat there for the most part. And I agree with you on being able to move your focus point around. one of the key things is be in control of your tools to make the photograph the way you want and in composition, looking within the frame and saying what is in focus and if something is out of focus, then where is those out of focus regions coming? Where are those out of focus regions coming in the frame is a measure of a, as a photographer of taking deliberate control over where the focus point is placed. If you can't move the focus point around very much, then it, it takes away some measure of control over how to make that photograph sharp and where to make it blurry.
0: Absolutely. If the focus point isn't enough for you, it's often enough for me. But if it's not enough for you, then, you know, almost all the new DSLRs also have live view. So you could expand, you know, uh, the focus just to get clean, sharp focus on whatever area you want, move your focus points over an area that's already magnified in live view. Yahoo, that's some juicy stuff for me uh, in terms of, you know, the offerings of a good digital camera.
1: Absolutely. Live View, I have to make a confession here, I believe it was Olympus that first introduced Live View in A modern uh, SLR style body. We had seen it before in some small, you know, point and shoot cameras and things like that. But when it was introduced in the larger SLR type cameras, I honestly mocked the feature because in my mind, I had in this vision of a person with this big lens strapped to an SLR body stretched out at arm's length in front of them. And they're peering at the back of the screen, you know, like you would do with a small point and shoot camera. And I just said, that's utterly ridiculous. Nobody's going to photograph that way. What I didn't, Appreciate and understand at the time is that live view uh, for anybody, especially that's working on a little more of a, a slower paced scene, like a landscape photographer, architects, and various others, where you've got the opportunity to slow down, dial in the focus by magnifying your live view, and then use a combination of either autofocus that you tweak or full on manual focus on your lens. It enables you to have a phenomenal level of control over what is in focus in your frame and eliminate the guesswork that we sometimes have over autofocus. We're not entirely sure if the autofocus actually nailed it or not. Even when you move your focus points around, probably all of us have experienced the frustration where we thought we had the autofocus point on the thing that we wanted sharp and then later we get back to the computer and look at the images at full resolution and we realize it didn't really nail it, it focused on something in the background or in the foreground or in between the time we focused and hit the shutter the subject moved a little bit so something was a bit off. We've all experienced that. So if you have live view and you can magnify and dial in with a slower paced shooting setup, you really have all of the guesswork taken out of the equation. You know the focus is nailed absolutely bang on and there's no guesswork, you've got it.
0: And also for people like us, it really helps take the guesswork out of composition. If you can take the time to slow down, so a beginner that's looking at a scene, you know, often he or she doesn't know if it's a good composition or not. That also takes time. Do the lines work? Does the scene make sense? Is the lighting good? You know, if we're looking at it in front of us, we can try and ameliorate it, make it better. You know, if we're starting to learn about composition, we could see it working better in front of our eyes as we move the camera to create better compositions. So, it's another tool that way, I think, as well.
1: I agree. And, uh, you know, a a fact that a lot of people don't realize when they first get into the SLR type cameras is that the viewfinder quite often doesn't show you hundred percent of the image that actually gets recorded when you hit the shutter the viewfinder is kind of cropped in from the edges so there's stuff around the edges that will be in your recorded frame that you can't actually see through the viewfinder so when you look at camera stats you know it'll talk about the viewfinder is a 95 percent viewfinder or things like this that's really just a recognition of the fact that the viewfinder isn't showing you the entire scene that you're going to record so one of the things that I uh, try to teach people in composition is really making sure where your frame edges are and what you have put at the edge. You know, Have you got something kind of dangling in on the side there? Have you amputated something? Classic thing is taking a portrait shot of somebody, and you know, their head is cut off at the top of the frame because you weren't realizing that they had stood up a little taller or something like that at the time you hit the shutter. So, looking where those frame edges are on live view, live view is showing you the image that will be recorded. It's what you see is what you get. Whereas, through an optical viewfinder, often you're not actually seeing 100% of the frame, you're seeing less. So you can't really tell what the edges are going to do.
0: Such an important point. I had it like, I know this as fact, I hadn't thought about it at all. Very important point. Like for those people starting, you know, when you're actually trying to emulate at a 100% level what you're looking at, you can do it in live view, but you can't through the viewfinder. If, you know, you're, you have a camera that's showing you 95% of the scene or 90% of the scene. Uh-huh. Um, the camera that I have now shows a hundred percent. One of my frustrations was, was that my previous camera did not, you know, and it was, um, it was a D700. So it was a, it was a high-end Nikon as well, but it didn't, I don't believe, I don't believe, uh, it showed me a hundred percent, whereas, uh, the D800 does. Um, and I like that a lot because I'm super concerned with my edges and I'm super concerned with every millimeter of my frame, especially the edges, because, you know, the eye often goes there. So, it is something to pay attention to, definitely, and a really good point.
1: Yeah, this is a good point to throw in a, a little quote here that I like to uh, to give people in thinking about this. You you know, you mentioned the phrase that you're super concerned about every millimeter of the frame, and I think that's a a good mindset to have. Not because we're going to train people to become obsessive compulsive. Uh, types, but the idea is that you're the photographer and you are the one who is making that shot. It's not the camera that's making the shot. It's not the designer back in the camera lab that designed the electronics or the software, you know, or whatever that's making the shot. It's you, and that shot should, should come out exactly the way that you want it to.
0: The frame is all The frame is all you have. Guide it accordingly. It's all you have. It's your main tool. It's your canvas. Every millimeter is important. Put it where you want.
1: Exactly. So there's a, an author in the States named Robert Bro, who uh, I use a quote from him. He says... Are you an artist? Look about you. Is there a physical tool whose use you have mastered, a part of your body that responds utterly to your control? Is your motive aesthetic? If so, you're an artist. If not, you're probably a writer. So that's a little bit of a joke because he is a writer. And so uh, he's kind of making a bit of a, a fun poke at, at writing. But the key thing there is that all other art forms involve the use of some kind of a tool, whether you're a painter, a sculptor, whether you're a musician, um, whether you're a cook. Uh, I think high cooking, you know, is a high art. Um, love to eat it. And yeah, it's yeah, definitely yeah, for consumable sure. art. But the key for all of these people is they have tools that respond utterly to their control. So they have a mindset that says, I'm deeply concerned about everything coming out the way I want it to, and I'm not really leaving it to chance. Um, we have the, the joke you know, for the cameras that have a, a, a mode dial on them. You have different modes like P uh, for program, uh, aperture priority, shutter priority, these different kinds of modes there. People will often say in a joke, The P mode is P is for professional, but I actually call it P is for potluck. Yeah. Because the camera is going to serve something up to you. If you've ever been to a potluck dinner, you know that the stuff that's going to come to the potluck dinner kind of falls within a certain range. You're never for sure what you're going to get. So that's why we say it's potluck what you're going to get, but you're probably not going to get lobster or Alaskan king crab. You know, you're probably not going to get caviar. Right. You're probably not going to get, you know, prime rib. So potluck is sort of an average selection of something. Yeah, there is a range, but it's within an average range. And that's really what the P mode, program mode on your camera is going to give you. It gives you within a range, but it's kind of an average range. If you want a kind of an average shot, then that's fine. But if you want to be an artist in the way that Robert Bro was talking about in his quote, or the way that you talked about having a lot of concern over everything within the frame, then you don't need an average result. You need something that's a particular result. And that... Uh, often comes by taking more control over the camera.
0: Let's talk about that for for a few more minutes, actually. And I agree with you. Like um, the camera for me, it's an instrument, right? It's an actual instrument, and the more one can master their instrument, you know, the finer music they will play, kind of thing. And that only comes with practice. So, it really is. It's not simple, you know. You, there is stuff to know. It sort of becomes simple after you've been. It becomes simpler after you've been doing it for a while. But it's definitely not simple. There there are stuff to know. Um, we were having a debate, <clears throat> not a debate, but a discussion, uh, pre-show over the best way to teach people uh, photography. Let's say. And my way lately is to introduce them via aperture priority mode, where they're looking at the apertures, and I'll talk to them about shutter speed as well, but I'll talk to them mainly about aperture because it gets them into making very creative choices at the beginning. I know you have a different uh, approach. Let's talk about your approach for a second and why you think um, your approach should be the one.
1: Yeah, I don't know that it should be the one. It's, it's the one that I use anyway, let's put it that way. And uh, always within the context of trying to give uh, a student the best possible learning experience. But the way I kind of uh, look at how to master the, the camera is to just forget about the feature list. You know, if you look at the marketing and those three pages you talked about earlier of all the features and, you know, buzzwords and all that stuff, forget about all of that. The basics of the camera are how to make an exposure and how to use a particular lens. So I have a phrase that I say, go into full manual mode to learn how to take control of the camera once you know how to take control of the camera go into the automatic modes for speed and convenience but if you start first with the automatic modes to get speed and convenience there may be things about the way the camera is working that you don't understand and when you get into a certain kind of shooting situation there's a certain kind of photographic result that you want to get you can't necessarily figure out on the fly how to do it if the automatic modes that you've always used for speed and convenience have kind of eliminated your your understanding of some crucial thing about why the camera is doing this right now. You know, and I've seen people frustrated that way. Why can't I get this or that? So the basics for exposure for me are not just about getting exposure. They're about getting creative control. So I like your use of aperture priority as an introductory learning tool for people because aperture isn't just about how much light is going to be recorded in the frame. It's also about a critical thing, which is depth of field. How much sharpness do I have front to back? And there's many, many times when the best photograph that you want to make is not front to back sharp, that there are out-of-focus blurry areas, and you're using that to drive the viewer's eye to a specific part of the frame that is in focus and is sharp. So you use aperture priority mode, or you could use full manual mode to manually select an aperture to say I don't want everything sharp from front to back here I want what Darwin Wiggett calls a thin slice of focus and I really want to have some areas blurry and some areas sharp but for me the flip side of that then is shutter speed and I use shutter speed creatively as well because one of the things that cameras can do that our human eye cannot do is they can record time as a snapshot of time in ways that we do not see the world Cameras either can shoot an incredibly fast scene that freezes motion like a hummingbird's wings frozen in midair or a bullet, you know, that's just splicing through an apple. Um, Let me restate that. Or a bullet blowing through an apple. We can't see that with our human eyes. But you can also look at the opposite end of the spectrum and talk about a long exposure where the clouds are just blurred into this river, you know, this streamer of clouds flowing through the sky or a waterfall is turned into almost a milky streamer of water bubbling over some rocks we don't see that way but the camera can if you take creative control over shutter speed so for me i kind of indicate both of those as creative choices not as technical choices and the way to get control of both aperture and shutter speed at the same time is in full manual mode rather than aperture priority or shutter priority or p for program or as i call it p for potluck
0: Interesting. Interesting. I think my I think my workshops are shorter than yours. So we have like slightly different styles, maybe. But uh, for me, in my defense, I do teach a shutter priority because what I usually tell people is more often than not, um, the aperture is going to be the single most creative choice you're going to make for most photographs you're going to make the average person in the city, let's say, you know, we come from different locations as well. But uh, when motion is more important than aperture, when motion is the most important thing happening, when it's the finish line of a Grand Prix or you want to blur water creatively, which, uh, of course, is a gorgeous thing to do. And we've both made many photographs like that. um, Then I tell people to go to shutter priority to, Mm -hmm. to enhance the motion aspect of the scene. Because uh, I just find they just get too bogged down in technical details when they're complete newbies. When they come to me, when they, when they come to a course of mine and they've had more photographic knowledge, then uh, for sure we're getting into manual because they already have some knowledge. But when they come without too much knowledge, I just try and give them something creative because they normally want some creativity. So I find using those modes as introductory modes and then talking about manual mode, I give them literature at the end that uh, clearly discusses manual mode then they can get into it that way.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's probably a good a good focus. You know, different students will have different levels of, uh, of acceptance of some of the technical complexities because ph- photography is a technical art form. The camera is a very complex technical thing. So if you have students that are more comfortable with a little more technology or a little more of a technical approach, then you can open up uh, Pandora's box a little bit more there. But if you have people that really want to focus on creativity, I think your goal of saying... Aperture priority for when you want to focus on the creative use of shallow depth of field versus large depth of field, yeah. or use shutter priority when you want to focus on a creative choice around motion and either freezing motion or blurring motion. I think that is a, a very, very good way because it boils down to a clear choice between people. How do I decide which camera mode I should be shooting in? Well, what am I caring about right now? Am I caring about emotion? related concern? Or am I caring about a sharpness and a depth of field type of concern? I think that works.
0: Different ways to arrive at the same goal within given amounts of time, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Let's actually talk about lens selection a little bit, because we touched upon it before, but lens selection is crucial, actually. I know it's about essential camera features, but the camera features can only go so far, and the camera needs to be paired with a lens. When it's by itself, it doesn't do too much.
1: No, it doesn't. The camera with no lens is uh, is a paperweight, I think, is the other word for it. <laughs> what lens should I use is one of the most common questions that I get. You what know, le- what or,
0: lens should I buy?
1: Or what or should I buy? You know, even worse, you know, uh, because then there's a, an implication that the person is trying to make some kind of a photograph and they can't, so they need a lens and they're trying to figure out which one. Uh, I try not to irritate people in my responses, but the best response I can give back is... What kind of a photograph are you trying to make? You know, What is the subject? What is the context or the circumstances of your shot? Is it low light? Is it a long way away from your subject, like a small bird? Uh, is it something where you need a very wide field of view because you're making uh, interior uh, architecture shots, for example, or, or whatever? You're trying to probe to find out what kind of photography the person is trying to accomplish because the key thing is every lens sees differently and it draws the image differently. The reason to choose a particular lens is related to the kind of photograph that you're trying to make and the way in which you want to make it. Uh, If you have a camera phone, you're not gonna do a lot of great bird photography because you can't get close enough to the birds. It's gonna be a tiny little dot in the frame. You need a really long telephoto lens, typically. Uh, Conversely, if you're trying to do you know, interior work, low light, uh, concert shooting, for example, where you've got bands and, you know, the interior lights are quite dim, except for maybe the light show that they've got on the stage. If you have some of the more economical kit lenses that typically come with the camera for a a lower price, one of the things about the lens, we talk about the speed of the lens, which is the maximum aperture that 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 lens can support, f56 you know or maybe f4 these are some technical numbers but what they do is they give you an indication of how much light that lens is allowing to pass through it to be recorded by the camera for interior low-light work those lenses generally speaking are going to be probably not what you would want you would want a faster lens f2.8 f2 f1.8 those apertures let in more light and that means you can take photographs in lower light conditions so those are really, really important questions to ask uh, and to answer when you try to decide what lens should I use here, what lens should I buy, you know, how do I decide how to put a lens on if I've got four lenses, which one uh, is going to make the shot the way that I want.
0: Yeah, for me, it's it's a similar thing. You know, I, I try and get people not to spend too much money at the beginning. You know, lenses are a thing that takes some knowledge. You know, we have different types of lenses. We have wider lenses. We have ones that try and emulate the normal way we see. And we have ones that are zoom. They bring things closer. People don't have, especially newer photographers, they just may not have experience with these different lenses to begin with. So to to tell them, for me to tell them to go buy a lens that's going to cost them a lot of money that they may or may not use, I feel guilty doing that. So I often tell them, you know, just bought, start with like a 50 millimeter lens kind of thing or get the, the kit lens with the camera. It's not too much, but buy a 50 millimeter lens because that's a fast lens. You can open that up and you can have fun with shallow depth of field and learn what shallow depth of field can get you. And it's bright for a concert lens kind of thing. So I, I also hesitate to tell people to buy all-in-one lenses. But if someone's been in photography for a while, I tend to tell them, Get a good normal lens, either prime or in the zoom range. Get a good really wide lens, prime or zoom. And get a really good zoom lens in the range that you're going to use more often, either prime or zoom. Um, These lenses are going to be more expensive. But once you're in it for a few years and and you're ready to have plunked down a bit of money because you know what you're going to get, at least you're sort of more informed
1: yeah absolutely you know spend the least amount of money that you can get away with while you're in the learning phase because uh, to sound like a us politician uh, at risk for a moment here you don't know what you don't know yet yeah so don't spend a lot of money when you don't know what you don't know because you may go out and buy that wonderful two thousand dollar lens that everybody on the internet has been raving about you know that it's so wonderful and then you realize, It doesn't make photos the way that you want to photograph. I run into this quite frequently with uh, on the Canon platform, for example, with tilt-shift lenses. People will hear that if you're a professional landscape photographer, you should have a 24-mil tilt-shift lens. Uh, I don't agree. You should have a 24-mil tilt-shift lens if you want to make photographs that need a 24-mil tilt-shift lens. Yeah. The problem is, how do you know if that lens, and it's an expensive one, how do you know if that lens is really the one that you should have? Uh, two ways first of all is you know beg borrow or steal one you know rent one or find a friend that's got one that will loan it to you for a while and shoot with it and see if it seems to do something for you Uh, second way might be think about the kinds of photographs that that you see or that you aspire to make but that every other single lens that you currently have doesn't let you make that might be a sign then that yeah I do need to actually buy a new lens at this point because there's a hole in my arsenal I want to make a certain kind of photograph and all of the lenses that I currently have do not let me make that photograph. That's then maybe a time to upgrade something.
0: What lenses do you shoot with?
1: I've really been stripping it down. I I used to be one of those guys that had the bag full of lenses and I carried it with me everywhere. And so I'm rummaging around, you know, eight eight lenses or whatever in the bag trying to pick one. I've stripped it way down. I still own a number of lenses, but they're very specific for certain types of work. And when I go out to make a type of work, I've learned now through muscle memory and through thousands of frames and thousands of hours in the field, what kind of lenses are going to let me do the work that I'm going out to make. So on my big uh, Pentax medium format system, for example, I typically carry only three lenses with me when I'm out and about. I have a 35 millimeter prime, uh, which is my wide angle. I have a 45 to 85 mil zoom lens, which is sort of a standard focal length zoom that I use for just kind of general walking around purposes and then I have a 150 to 300 mil zoom that I use for telephoto might be for wildlife or it might be for doing close-ups of architecture in a city scene or uh, close-up landscape photographs you know pulling details out of a mountain scape for example in the Rockies things like that but those are probably my three most common go-to lenses on the medium format system in 35 mil terms the equivalent that I used to shoot with uh, similarly was a 24 to 70 zoom, um, a 70 to 200 millimeter f4 zoom, and then I had uh, a couple of wide angle lenses that were primes adapted over actually from some other uh, alternative camera systems that I use via adapter rings. I had uh, a 21 millimeter prime lens that I used for a wider angle than I could get out of my 24 to 70 three millimeters doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're trying to do a grand landscape shot, three millimeters can actually be a, a lifesaver. So
0: Cool. Very cool. And you make a good point. It really depends on what you want to do, what you want to shoot. Some guy that's interested in architecture is not going to want the same lens as some guy that's Doing fashion photography or food photography, let's say, you know, really depends on what you want to shoot. I think a lot of people that listen to this podcast, you know, they're nature shooters uh, like yourself. Often they're, they're shooting landscapes. So they'll appreciate you sharing what lenses uh, you have. They may be surprised that a lot of your older lenses were primes.
1: Yeah. And I've, I've gotten really to, to warm up to the primes more. And part of that is because of the, some of the high-tech features of the digital cameras now. You know, we talked about live view earlier. None of us are getting any younger, and as we get older, one of the things that happens is our eyes age, and it can be a little harder to see those details. You know, you're know, you trying to focus a manual focus lens through the viewfinder. It, it, it can be a challenge as we age. But the thing with live view on a modern digital camera, throw that old manual focus lens on there, and then go into live view, magnify on Canon, for example. You can go up to five times or ten times magnified live view and dial that manual focus on the lens, if you have the, the time, you know, with a, a slower paced shooting situation, which I often do in landscape or architecture, you know, city shooting, for example, I've got the time to throw the camera on the tripod and take a moment to do that manual focus in live view. Those old lenses are actually uh, having a resurgence in their, in their usefulness now because of the high tech functionality of magnified live view. We never had that before in, in film and in the early days of digital.
0: Yeah, some of those lens, I mean, you know, I've used old lenses before. Those puppies are bloody damn sharp. <laughs> you know, they are.
1: And they're cheap because they're cheap. Our, they're cheap. anybody wants them. So you can pick them up for a song on, uh, on the internet or, you know, local uh, secondhand uh, camera sales. You know, people you know that are getting rid of some of their old... Uh, kit of stuff, you know, uh, you can find manual focus lenses for a uh, really, really approachable price.
0: And when you're shooting certain subject matter, manual lenses are just perfect. You just have your time, like you say, you may even end up making better pictures because you have the time to to sit down and, and think about the exposure and the composition and get what you need.
1: Yeah. And I think even in, in circumstances, maybe where people would expect that autofocus uh, should be the way you go. If you think, for example, in, in the classic uh, street photography, Genre. I think all of the best street photographs from most of the people that we would look at as really kings of the street photography genre, for the most part, are using manual focus lenses. They're putting them out to a, a fixed focal point, knowing that the subjects they typically are photographing are at a distance of, say, three meters or something like that. So they just turn the manual focus ring on the lens to three meters, and then they just shoot. You know, there is no focusing really going on. They're positioning themselves they're focusing by moving their own body to a certain common distance away from their subjects and that's how they focus and they're not running around with autofocus trying to you know dial in different focal points on things so there's a lot of mileage that you can make out of manual focus lenses And they tend to be uh, really simple to operate, they tend to be really reliable, they tend to be, you know, generally speaking, very good quality, and they're cheap, for the most part. There are some insanely expensive uh, manual focus lenses, if you look at the Zeiss Otis lenses that are getting a lot of press right now. Those are not cheap lenses, but uh, they're definitely brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no, but there's, uh, they're the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. In in terms of uh, freakishly expensive prices. Yeah. (laughs) We're running long on time, but I did want to just ask you one more quick question. I had a quick point to make, actually, about the smaller cameras. The mirrorless cameras or the point-and-shoot cameras. Um, I'm often getting questions about, you know, uh, what features in those to use? What are the essential features? And one of the things that I that I like to tell people about those cameras, because people do come to, they want to take courses in earnest, and they people don't like wasting their money. So sometimes a lot of these cameras, they're expensive. They're like a $1, 1500 to two thousand dollars. Sometimes their most essential features for me, I find, are buried in the menu. One of the the gorgeous things about a DSLR is when you want to change the ISO, it takes a millisecond. When you want to change the aperture, it takes a millisecond. If I have to go even one layer deep into the menu to to change a camera to aperture priority, for me, it's just ridiculous. So for me, you really have to think about the basics of photography, and that's why it's good not to spend a lot of money and uh, not buy cameras whose most basic features are too embedded uh, in the menu.
1: I think I would probably agree with you on that point. Uh, You know, we look at all of the features and functions and you go down the marketing list that the manufacturers want to put out to convince us why their thing is, is worth all the money they're charging for it, and they're brilliant. But a camera is a tool that you're trying to use. And if it becomes hard to use because it hasn't been designed to create photographs in a really fluid, seamless Um, simple manner, then the way the tool is designed has become a barrier to the photographer actually using the camera for what its purpose is, making photographs of a certain type. So for the smaller cameras, I think the control layout and having a certain amount of either dedicated buttons that are, you know, well-placed to hand... Or buttons that can be reprogrammed at the user's discretion to put, say, an ISO function onto a button. If you're changing ISO all the time and you want to be able to quickly access it, is there a reprogrammable button or two buttons on the back of the camera body that you can set up your own custom function on? Or having what's often called, you know, the quick uh, quick menus where you can go in and there's a small array of commonly used functions like aperture, ISO, and some of these that you can easily access from a single multi-function controller rather than jumping through hoops in the menu system. Those make a really big difference in whether you're going to be frustrated with that camera over a longer period of time. Once you've mastered some of these essentials of photography and you know you want to make a photograph in a certain way, does the camera let you do it quickly and easily, or does it get in your way? Um, That's a really really important factor with the smaller cameras.
0: Exposure compensation, manual focus, if you don't have a grasp over these two things you can't ever make a good creative picture, I don't think. You know, consistently. You can't do it consistently.
1: You're back to potluck and really relying on the camera with a bunch of default automatic modes and hoping that it will pick something close to what you meant when you hit the shutter button.
0: Pretty much, pretty much. So again, that was one of my uh, just pet peeves with the smaller cameras. You know, I have seen, I have seen some really good ones. I tested um, Fuji's uh, X-T1, really good camera. I tested it a few months ago. That That's a mirrorless camera fabulous, well-designed, but I've seen so many poorly designed small point-and-shoots, I can't tell you. So uh, that's a serious uh, a serious one for me. When people ask me, you know, what point-and-shoot to buy because they're not going to buy a DSLR, I try to convince them, but they're just not going to buy it. It's too big. They want a small camera. Uh, I, I always guide them to the slightly more expensive point-and-shoot cameras, but at least their features are, you know, at the finger length versus having to dive uh, deep into the menu.
1: Yeah, I think there are some of these small cameras clearly are designed by people who understand photography and then others are designed by people as sort of a a general consumer electronics device. It could be a camera, it could be a music player, it could be a phone, it could be whatever, and they don't really care. They're just designing small consumer electronics devices and really the, the size and the cost is their primary purpose. If you want to be serious about photography, it doesn't mean you need to spend a wicked amount of money and have this massive camera with all these lenses. What it does mean is you need a camera that you utterly understand how to control and how to use and that it supports you in making the kind of photograph that you want to make right now and if the camera is not doing that then maybe it's not the one for you no matter how many reviews are being posted about it on popular websites
0: yeah it takes some restraint maybe you know but really if you want to learn if you want to learn about it you know just buy something old and cheap and you'll you'll likely learn more if you're if you're doing it in earnest you know i think
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, you know, buy something used, you know, uh, as a learning vehicle, the essentials and the fundamentals of photography have not changed really since the craft was invented back in the early to mid-1800s. Exposure, lens selection, focus, you know, these kinds of things are the bedrock that photography is built on top of. And if you're in a learning mode or in an exploratory mode where you want to push some creative boundaries and try different things... Don't spend a lot of money, don't have a lot of complexity, get something simple, get something that's affordable, learn to use it inside out, push it past the breaking point, try everything, throw everything at it that you can think of. And then learn where it falls down and then if you need to upgrade and spend some more money here and doing it from a position of more knowledge about the kind of photography that you want to do and what the equipment is going to have to do to let you make that happen.
0: True, so true. If you wanted to do it with film, you could probably do it for 200 bucks with a sick camera and lens. If you wanted to go super old school and if you wanted to go digital for your first time, you could get a sick used camera, two 300 bucks with like a good lens and you could be making just killer photographs, just learning basic photography, using the essential camera features versus the bells and whistles that you're paying for that you're not going to use. Absolutely. Cool. And that, I think, uh, will let it uh, go for the essential camera features. But if people want to find out more about what you're doing, Royce, uh, why don't you tell us where we could find you, what you're up to for the next short while?
1: Yeah, I've got some, uh, some interesting things going on in 2015, uh, trying to slow down my pace a little bit, but invest a little more time and energy in certain things. Mm-hmm. So January is going to be a busy month with a few things going on in the Canadian Rockies. Got uh, a printing workshop that I'm doing uh, with a couple of colleagues focusing on black and white photography talk about old school Uh, the entire workshop is going to be all about black and white and all about print and we're going to do uh, field photography and then develop and then print images in a four-day workshop in the Rockies really looking forward to that Uh, my colleagues will be Olivier Dutray, many people may know of him from uh, from online very popular black and white film photographer based uh, here just outside of Calgary. And uh, Costas Costoulas, my master printer uh, partner from here in Calgary at Resolve Photo, so we're really looking forward to that. I'll be going back to Iceland again in the summer as well uh, in July with my uh, partner Tim Volmer from uh, formerly from Iceland, now from Czech Republic. He's just moved this past year. Tim's a great guy, high energy, lots of fun, and of course Iceland is a is a brilliant photographic dream come true. Uh, such an amazing country. Um, can't wait to get back there and work with a small group as we go to uh, some amazing locations and photograph the Icelandic landscape. My website, uh, people can find uh, details if they want, vividaspectphoto.com. It'll be posted there.
0: Super cool, Royce. So envious. Going to get to Iceland one day. One day. One day. Uh, I've seen some of Royce's Icelandic photography, so do check out his uh, his website. Uh, He does make and take Beautiful photography.
1: Thanks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks as always uh, for doing this, Royce, and uh, I know we'll we'll have you back again at some point in the future.
1: Okay, awesome. Looking forward to it. Always a pleasure, Marco.
0: Thanks, Royce. All right. Cheers. And I'd like to thank Royce Howland one last time for doing that interview. You're gonna want to perhaps check out the show notes uh, to see a couple of images that uh, were made using essential camera features. Royce has a killer one of a B, and uh, I do recommend you check it out. You can also check out his other work, as mentioned, at vividaspectphoto.com. I'd like to thank the Camera Store again for sponsoring this podcast. The Camera Store is a full-line dealer for an entire range of photographic equipment and supplies. Whether you are a leading professional or new to photography, their expert staff are always ready to assist you in finding the perfect equipment at great prices. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We are in the holiday times again, so I'd like to wish all our listeners and everyone we've interviewed a really happy holiday season. All the best for the following year, and as always, just get out there and keep on shooting. Bye for now, everyone. Thanks so much.